Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Psalm 90. Uh, And if you get there, you may notice, uh, if your Bible has it, that above this Psalms chapter number and superscript, this Psalm here begins book four of the Psalms. So for 89 Psalms, for, for three books, uh, that it's subdivided into, uh, the overwhelming majority of them uh, have taught us how to move from fear to faith. And the bridge that carries us to faith is, is you and I focusing on the facts, who God is, what God has done, uh, what God has promised to do. And Psalm 90 is all about who God is. It, it is a hymn about him. And, uh, you know, that might be the most important of those three facts Uh, that we're to focus on because what God uh, has done and what God has promised to do, well, it flows from who he is. It's always consistent with and uh, dependably derived from his character. Uh, This psalm is also unusual in that it is the oldest song in God's hymnal here. I know some of you are like me, you like the old old hymns. Well, this, this is the oldest one we've got in the Bible because it was written by who? Moses, right? So centuries before David, who wrote many psalms, and the other ones were written by people from his lifetime or later, um, centuries before that, God inspired Moses to pen the words of the lyrics of this song. He wrote a couple. There's, there's one Exodus, one in Deuteronomy, uh, and then we've got Psalm 90 here. So let's read it, and we'll study it verse by verse. It says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return, ye children of men. For a thousand years and thy sight are but as yesterday, and when it is past and as a watch in the night, thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, and in the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee. Our secret sins are in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. 
Let's pray. Father, as we come to this song that you had Moses write for us, Lord, I pray that the truth uh, that you provide to it, to us uh, in it, God, I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would, would help us understand it, uh, most of all, would help us respond to it. If there's any changes that we need to make, whether that's in how we think or what we say, what we do, uh, God, I pray that we'd have hearts that are yielded to your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, it's a psalm about him, uh, him about him. It tells us about who God is. And the first four verses, really the focus is on the eternality uh, of God. Verse 1 begins uh, getting our focus on who God is by reminding us of that, the eternality of God. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, there's a couple of important things in that first phrase for us to learn that might not be readily recognizable if we just quickly read through that verse. The very first word, Lord, um, in, in the King James Version and, and maybe in, in many other modern translations, um, it might be in all capitals. And, and typically when we find that in the Old Testament, that means it is uh, the name for God in Hebrew, Yahweh. That's not the case here. Um, most Bibles will capitalize the first word of every psalm. If you start looking through all your psalms, the first word is often capitalized. So um, it's actually the Hebrew word Adonai, uh, which means sovereign Lord. It's, it's important. When God chooses to use a specific name for himself uh, in Scripture, we should pay attention. There's a reason. There's intent there. Adonai means sovereign Lord. So much like uh, on Sunday what we learned about the New Testament Greek word for that church's prayer in Acts 4 when they said um, the Greek word was despote, still means the same thing, sovereign Lord. It implies a total, absolute dominion. That is who they're praying to here. That's who this song is, is written to. He's got complete control over everything. So we're told in the very first word of this psalm who God is. And he... He's our dwelling place. He's our home, uh, where we reside, uh, where we stay forever. Now, uh, we live in homes because they offer us protection and comfort and security. Uh, but is there any better protection, comfort, or security than in him? Than in this one, the sovereign one with total, absolute dominion at all times, who's in complete control of everything. Most of us are blessed with the homes that we live in. That wasn't the case for the original audience who Moses was writing to here. Uh, from the context and the content of this psalm, we can conclude that Moses was uh, writing this to Israel during their wilderness wanderings. It was 40 years. And there they lived in tents. And uh, they had been brought right up to the precipice of the promised land. Uh, but you remember what happened. What should have been a very short trip from Egypt to Mount Sinai into the promised land, it became a 40-year detour because fear took over and they balked and they failed to believe God's promise. They saw giants in the land. And because of their faithlessness, God punished that generation by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're homeless when it comes to having a permanent dwelling but were they really? No, that's what Moses is trying to tell them here. God reminds them in verse 1 that the sovereign Lord has been, he is right now, and he always will be 
their dwelling place. And then verse 2 reminds us that this was the case before they were even called out of Egypt, before uh, they were even uh, made a nation, when when God came to Abraham and and he called him out of Ur, that was the case. In fact, this was the case, verse 2 says, before the mountains were formed, or even the earth. From everlasting to everlasting, they have had a home because their home was the eternal God. Now, I don't want to veer too far off course here, uh, but let me tell you, this is not just one of my favorite psalms. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because um, I, I believe it holds the key to helping um, understand the supposed contradiction that we find in Scripture between God's sovereignty and our salvation and man's free will and our salvation. Um, and as I said, I'm not going to veer off course. You can ask me about that later at a time and we can get our minds warped. And because uh, it's a little deep. This is a little deep, even what we're presented uh, with here. One of the most difficult concepts when it comes to who God is, just because we're mortal and we're so different than him, than him is, is this. God is. That's what he's trying to tell us about who God is. God is. We're taught here the eternality of God, that the creator wasn't created. That when he created time, one of the first things he did there in Genesis 1, Separate the day uh, from the night. When, when he did that, he created it for you and I. He is not bound by it. He, he exists. God exists completely outside of our concept of linear time. Now, he experiences it. We experience him in it. We do. But he exists outside of it. We had a beginning. And on earth, we, we will have an end. Um, not him. He has no beginning and no end. From everlasting to everlasting, he simply is. And C.S. Lewis, uh, the author, theologian, he refers to this concept uh, given in verse 1 and 2 as the eternal now of God. That for God, everything is, is present. Meaning right now at this moment, God is experiencing when he first said, let there be light. He's experiencing it as a present moment. Now for us, we don't even experience it. It was thousands of years ago. Um, right now, God is experiencing um, the day that Christ suffered on the cross as a present moment. Right, right now, God is experiencing the day you came to this earth when you were born as a present moment. Right, right now, God is experiencing, it's not just past, it's even future. Right now, God is experiencing you and me and all of the redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth as a present moment and experience. Now, that's kind of mind-blowing and mind-warping because why? We live in linear time that he created for us, but he's not bound by it. He has no beginning. He has no end. For him, all of that is a present experience and all at the same time. Um, You and I, we're bound by time. We live in its constraints. We, We have a past. We have a present. We have a future. God just has and is. And I'm thankful that he created time for us. And uh, we're told here to recognize this character quality of God because it ought to encourage us that he is great. (laughs) He's big. And that no matter what comes our way, no matter our circumstances, if we have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, he always has been, he is right now, and he always will be our dwelling place. Eternally secure home well-protected, comfortable dwelling place. Now, what about us? Verse 3. No, we we live within time. And verse 3 tells us what happened ever since Adam and Eve doubted God and fell within the constraints of time. 
Verse 3 says, Thou turnest man to destruction, or the dust, saying, Return, ye children of men. Because of sin, death entered, and an end to human life came into being. Remember, that wasn't God's original intent uh, at creation. That was his warning to Adam. He said, In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Up to that point, that wasn't in God's plan for him. So verse 3 is a reminder for us of the, of the drastic level of difference between us and God. Verse 3 emphasizes who God is by emphasizing or reminding us of who we are. We're mortal. When God pronounced the curse on man for our sin back in Genesis 3:19, he reminded us, for dust thou art, and to dust you shall return. And verse 3 says, return, ye children of men. That's not a call to repentance or a call to return to the Lord. It's, it's actually the command of God. God is speaking there. It's a command of God for man to now be mortal as a result of their sin. The same mouth who spoke creation into existence is, is now here in verse 3 commanding an end to man's physical existence. And the eternality of God is taught once more in verse 4. Um, might sound a, a familiar passage because it's quoted by Peter in the New Testament. For a thousand years and thy sight are, are but as yesterday when it has passed. And it's as a watch in the night. So Moses poetically repeats and I, I guess reinforces the concept that God taught us in the preceding verses. God exists outside of time to such a degree that a thousand years, uh, to us a very long time, but to him, it's like a single day. And even it goes further. He's like, honestly, it's like a, a guard watch in the nighttime. It's like a, a shift, a guard shift. It's not even a day. No, he's eternal. He exists in the eternal now. And, and while that might be difficult for us to comprehend, uh, it should be awe-inspiring. It should create in us a, a positive fear, reverence for God. Uh, for the person that's got a relationship with him through faith in Christ, this should be a source of great comfort because he is our eternal, eternally secure home. And then verses 5 through 12 talk about the stability of God. His eternality provides us with stability. God uses Moses here um, to, to give us a few illustrations that were common in the Psalms, common throughout Scripture. There are also things that are common uh, to our existence within time to teach us another fact about who God is, his stability. And again, there's an emphasis on the dramatic difference between who we are and who God is in, in verses 5 to 6. It says, Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it's cut down and withereth. And so some people believe that the, the them and the they in verse 5 is referring to man and children of men in verse 3. That's possible. Uh, some others believe that it's talking about time because he had just talked about that in verse 4. And the them and the they are talking about years. Uh, either way, the same message is given. Our, our time is limited. And, and then because we live in time, so are we. Um, we have a beginning, and we have an end. And so both our time here and we ourselves, we're not stable. We're carried away uh, as, as rapidly as when a flash flood comes through and, and wipes stuff out. Um, or like fragile grass. That's the other object lesson here. Grass that sprouts up overnight, but because of the afternoon heat, uh, it dies, it's cut down, it's withered, so do you see the disparity here? I mean, it's intentional. Um, God is eternal. He's not bound by time. 
Our physical existence is temporal. We're, we're constrained by time. He's like the stable mountains of verse 2. But we, we're like a flash flood or fragile foliage. We're here for a moment. And Moses saw and Moses led a people during these wilderness wanderings where this was a constant reminder to Moses. Not one of them other than Joshua and Caleb would enter the promised land. The whole generation would be cut down in the wilderness. We're shown God's stability and our instability. One, one bad choice. Well, ten. Ten were bad and two were good. Ten bad choices. But in one moment, it led to 40 years of wandering and a generation that was never able to enter in. A whole generation that were cut down because of their instability in faith. A whole generation that, as verse 7 says, they were consumed by God's anger and they were troubled by his wrath. Why did they receive that from God's hand? Is God unjust? Was he unfair? Well, verses 8 and 9 tell us why. It's because of sin. There was no hiding it. Uh, he knows our iniquities. Sins that we might think are private or that are secret or hidden, uh, they're actually in the light of his countenance, it says there. He, he's so aware of them, it's as though they were right before his face. And as a result, we're justly under his wrath. Uh, we spend our years as a tale that has been told. You might see that's in italics in the King James. Literally in the Hebrew, it means our life is like a groan. We might think, wow, I'm, well, I'm 48. But really, my life is like a groan, like a brief, painful exhale. That's what we learn in the New Testament, too. Our life is like a vapor. That's life for those who live in sin and without faith. But God's stability, it's connected to his eternality. And so our, our uh, instability is connected to our mortality. Verse 10 gives us an average, a general average for human existence. I mean, I think Moses lived to be 120 and Aaron a couple years longer. But this is the general average for, for even those people he was writing to back then. We might be blessed with 70 years. 80 would be above average if you've got more than that. Some of you are really blessed by God. Um, but even if we live that long or, or longer yet, the point of that verse at the end is those lengthened years are they're only labor and sorrow without a relationship with the one who is our dwelling place. Even for us who, who are, sometimes they are. I was complaining about having to wear my wife's readers over my glasses last night when I was trying to get a sliver out of her foot. Mr. Horace said it's rough getting old. So it's even labor and sorrow sometimes for us who do have a relationship with God. I, it's just, I read verse 10 and I hear um, echoes in the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Please read through the whole thing, because if you don't, it's just really depressing. It gets better at the end. Verses 11 to 12, they encourage us to apply the facts about who God is and who we are that have been presented in these first 10 verses. Um, we're, we're supposed to apply these facts with these instructions. First of all, verse 11, uh, the messenger is take to heart the intensity of God's wrath against sin and fear him. I don't know that this occurs to the majority of people in our world, it, even in the majority of Christians. Um, sin and how God sees it and how God must justly respond to it because of his holiness, that is not taken to heart. Um, sin is laughed at and it's mocked. It's not taken seriously anymore, e even in the church. There, there's 
too many preachers that want to refer to sin, even if it's mentioned from the pulpit, but they want to refer to it as mistakes or, or being broken and instead of calling it what Scripture calls it, rebellion, rebellion against God. Secondly, in verse 12, God instructs us to apply these facts about God's eternality and his stability and the fail, frail and, and fleeting nature of our physical existence. Um, he says, number, teach us to number our days. God, teach us to number our days so that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. That's good medicine for the condition that he's presented uh, here. We need to quit being distracted, being amused, and being entertained. We need to quit that for, for a moment and really recognize what God has presented here about who he is and who we are. That, that we are only given so long <laughs> uh, to come into a relationship with him, to live in that relationship with him while we're here on earth. Notice God doesn't say, teach us to apply our heads to wisdom, teach us to apply our hearts. Um, this has to be more than a cerebral knowledge. Uh, there should be a meaningful life transformation. Teach us to apply our hearts. Change the way I live. Change my heart. Spurgeon said about this verse, of all types of arithmetic, this might be the hardest one for most of us, to number our days. Because we number things all the time. We number our possessions. Uh, we can account our revenues. We estimate our returns on investments. But we are persuaded that our days are infinite and that they're innumerable. And as a result, we never even begin to number our days. Well, God tells us to here, church. It's how we fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. It, this is the initiation of a new way of living when we obey what he tells us to do here in verse 12. When Moses asked God to teach us to number our days so we can apply our hearts to wisdom, teach us means that, that this wisdom here is not natural. It's something that we have to learn. And when it is, when we apply these facts about who God is and who we are, it has a purpose so that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom so that we can properly see things just as God does. So we can see the truth so, so that we can begin to live according to his values rather than the values that resulted in us rebelling and receiving his wrath. And we're taught here, like, time to do so is of the essence. And finally, in verses 13 and 17, we're taught about the reliability of God. That's who he is. He's reliable. And, and his reliability is in his mercy. Back in verse 3, God spoke to humanity in judgment. He commanded us to return to destruction or return to the dust for our sin. But now in this prayer song, in verse 13, Moses asked God to return. That's our only hope, is for God to return to us, to turn to us, and to deliver us from what we caused. And he did, didn't he? Didn't God turn to us? And Jesus Christ, um, Moses asked God here, how long? And, you know, that's a very common question in the Psalms. I think David must have borrowed this from Moses. Uh, it doesn't do God any dishonor when we cry out to him for deliverance and we say, how long? Um, Spurgeon also said this, our, our fault is not too great a boldness with God when we're pleading for deliverance. If anything, it's too much apathy for him to actually do so. There's too many people's problem with the gospel. The gospel is bold. I mean, yes, we come humbly to Christ, expressing our total dependence on him and him alone uh, for our salvation. But that's a very bold thing to do, isn't it? You're saying, I I'm totally at your mercy, God. That's the only thing that's reliable. 
I need it. Instead, too many people attempt salvation with, with self-correction, getting things right on their own, um, trying to have what good I've done outweigh uh, whatever bad I've done. Well, that's a different kind of bold, not a good kind. There's not a shred of humility there. It's, it's also a complete impossibility as a means of salvation, according to Scripture. We, we will only be satisfied. We will only be saved by what verse 14 presents. It says, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. So God's mercy, and you might have a different word, um, like steadfast love, faithful love. The Hebrew word is chesed. Again, God's covenant love to us, especially for you and I in Jesus Christ. There is no reliable source of salvation or satisfaction in anyone else or anywhere else, in Christ alone. Only in Christ is there an eternity of rejoicing and gladness. That's what he says there. Show us your, your covenant love to us early so that we can rejoice and be glad all our days. We must find salvation and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And we're told to seek it early here. So meaning the earlier in our brief existence on this earth, the better. But, but also literally early in the morning. Even for us who have been saved. I think too often we, we come to him for salvation. We might do it early but then uh, for our sustainment, we go elsewhere. In satisfaction, we go elsewhere. No, we, we need to do that as well. Uh, F.B. Meyer, he was late 1800s, early 1900s, contemporary of D.L. Moody, uh, Baptist pastor from England. He said, God's covenant love to us in Jesus Christ, the only thing that saves, the only thing that satisfies, it should be sought early. There's no hour like that of the first thing in the morning for fellowship with God. You wait longer, and you will find more and more distractions telling you satisfaction's here or it's there. Go to him in his mercy right away and find the filling of that hour overflowing to the rest of your day. In verse 15, Moses asked for the joy from salvation and satisfaction and God's covenant love. He says, can you give it to us proportionate uh, to the affliction and evil that we've experienced. So uh, 40 years, well, and you could probably tack on all the suffering they had in Egypt. He's saying, God, can we have uh, that much? And you know what is so awesome? In Jesus Christ, God promises us in the New Testament uh, a joy that far outruns that. I think Moses asked for too little there. That's what we have in Christ. And then what the New Testament says? We have a God who does exceedingly, abundantly. Beyond all that we could ask for or even conceive in our minds. That's his promise to us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. It says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is it works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight and glory. Our light, our affliction, it's light. It's for a moment. What about God's glory to us in Jesus Christ? No, it's exceeding and it's eternal and it's a weight. There's as many contrasts in that one little verse there as there is here in all of Psalm 90. Essentially here uh, in verses 16 and 17, Moses asks for God to work with his people and through his people. Uh, it says, let thy work appear unto thy servant and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. I love that he closes with these two verses. Um, because you could read Psalm 90 and feel about this big. And that's not necessarily wrong. I think that's God's intent. 
because he wants you to understand how big he is. But he closes with, with this, and um, it, it's, it's amazing and it's ennobling um, what God teaches us here. Um, because God in his grace has chosen to work with and, and work through those who trust him. Human beings, you and me, those who've trusted in Christ as their Savior, God has chosen to work through us. And that's what Moses is saying here. He's saying God uh, established the work that we're trying to do here. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. God's word says there, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's who we are. Isn't that kind of crazy thing to put treasure in a jar of clay? Seems a little unfitting. That's what God's done. When, when he gives us his work to do and, and when he works through through us, this mortal, brief existence, man, who he's redeemed. Um, he, he takes messes and, and makes a message out of them. He brings beauty from ashes. His beauty, that's what it said there in, in verse 17. Let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. Hopefully it's on us and hopefully it can be seen in us. That's his design, his desire, and that's, that's what Moses' desire is and what he's praying for here. God answered that prayer for Moses. He would come down from that mountain and his face would be so lit up from being in the presence of God, it would be reflecting God's light. And some of the people were a little unnerved, but like, can, you, can you cover that up a little bit? And that's what Moses asked for, not just for himself, for, for all those. God worked with us. God worked through us. And, and there our purpose is restored. Or as verse 17 says, established. We're no longer living pointlessly like those who haven't put their faith and trust in, in Christ uh, for the things of this world. We're no longer... Um, living to glorify self, we're living to glorify him and to lead others to do so. And that's what God's word tells us is the whole reason behind his grace and covenant love to us in Jesus Christ. I was talking with one of our young, young college students a little while ago and they were like, I just don't know why. why, why he saved me. And that's a good question. I think we all ask that because we're totally undeserving. But I he tells us why in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He says, and he died for all, <laughs> that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's why, a restored purpose, living for his glory. You see, when we focus on the fast, especially this first one, who God is, and we focus on his eternality and his stability and his reliability, when we do that, we have stepped out on that bridge from fear to faith. And it's our faith in his grace to us in Jesus Christ that that's the path to eternal life and that's the path to joy and gladness all of our days and, and it's our path to a life that has true purpose restored. So as Tommy and the praise team come up, we'll sing a couple more songs. But as we do that, will you worship him for who he is tonight? That he's eternal, that he's stable, that he's reliable. And then more importantly, uh, Will you worship him when we leave here and tomorrow and the next day, day by day, moment by moment, by putting your faith and trust in him? Uh, that's the worship. That's a song that, that doesn't ever end. Let's all stand.